Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to uh, Jennifer Eusin from Drexel University, where she's Associate Professor of English and Philosophy. And uh, she's written a book called The Future Life of Trauma, which is published by Fordham Press, uh, with the subtitle of Partitions, Borders, Repetition. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. I'm happy to be here. This is a really fascinating book, which combines some very detailed engagements with psychoanalysis, uh, post-colonial theory, but also actually with um, some, you know, practical um, historical events. Um, and there's, you know, things like kind of questions of memorialization, heritage, little bits of art history in there. It's an incredibly kind of wide-ranging um, text. And I guess that the, the kind of place to start with a text like this is, um, where does it fit in with the kind of academic work you've been doing? What, what was the sort of starting point for the book, I guess, both in terms of your, your own intellectual developments, but also actually in, in some of the experiences you had in, in Rwanda? Yeah, sure. I think, um, like anything, the the story of, of this genesis is a long one. And perhaps what might be the most interesting to touch on is not so much um, the process of my intellectual pursuit of it, but rather what happened in Rwanda, which was that after some years of graduate study and some years of engaging with various um, texts in in the fields of knowledge of psychoanalysis, of philosophy, of post-colonial studies, and so forth, I was in Rwanda and had the opportunity to meet a number of survivors from the genocide. And they were very kind to invite me into their home and to share their stories with me. And it was a very, very, um, I don't, I still, to this day, this was many years ago now, um, it was about 10 years ago, perhaps. I still, to this day, don't have the right words to describe what it was like, except to say that I was very humbled on the one hand, and I felt like a profound intruder, even though they had willingly shared their stories with me. And I remember, and I speak about this, or I write about it briefly in the preface, that one of the widows, she was walking me back to where I was staying, and I had asked her why she shared her stories with me, and also why she had shared them so candidly. And she gave an answer which was very simple, and she just said that I'm not concerned with past as past, I'm concerned with past as future. And what struck me about it was not so much the articulation of these two temporalities, but rather the ways in which she was linking together past as past and then past as future. So it had to do with the way in which she was invoking metaphor as the realization of an intimate knowledge. And it changed something for me in my approach and thinking of what we call the traumatic event and of trauma and the ways in which people experience these these enormous events. That's the short of the long, I would say. And so the book became an attempt to think through all of that. I mean, it's it's really interesting, actually, that you say, you know, 
this has stayed with you and it's been, I guess, you know, the book is part of the process of, of, of thinking through all, all that. And that actually really comes through even in the sort of quite detailed engagements with uh, the two main bodies of theory in the book. But I guess before we start to think about those theoretical ideas, it's probably worth doing a bit of ground clearing about those two terms you mentioned, uh, trauma and the traumatic events. And I wonder if you could like talk me through uh, what, what you, you kind of mean by those ideas. At least with regard to the, do, the two discourses that I'm um, trying to engage with in the text, namely the psychoanalytic discourse and the philosophical discourse with regard to trauma and, and events, what is shared is the idea that something that constitutes an event is something that brings about a change, whether we call that a difference, a transformation, a metamorphosis, and does so in a way that touches on an element or a set of elements that is ungraspable, but is nevertheless experienced and felt in in the basic realms of the human condition. And I think that with regard to trauma, especially there is a tendency, and now I'll say in the university discourse, which is to say the, the ways in which academics treat um, psychoanalysis and consider philosophy and philosophical cons- considerations of what we call the event. Um, I think that there's something shared, which has to do with about something about, pardon me, the way in which there is always in what we call the human experience something that grasps or that escapes our grasp. And I felt in the moment that I was speaking with those widows that there was something, uh, I don't want to say wrong, but sliding underneath all of that thinking. So the ground clearing that you're asking after has, has a lot to do with the ways in which we intellectualize what we call event, the ways in which we intellectualize what we call trauma. And trauma has a history in terms of its etymology with regard to the Greek and means wound or wounding. And this has been called upon a lot in, in terms of uh, the different discourses. And I was trying to consider the ways in which putting together trauma as a wound and as a wounding and event as difference, change, um, metamorphosis, transformation, how the putting together of those two words is itself like also a metaphor that is the realization of a, no- of a knowledge. So that is, that's, that's the basic idea that I had behind the book, which was to explore what it means to think trauma not to articulate what trauma is or the ways in which we experience or do not experience it, but rather simply to think trauma and how that thinking is what I call a kind of materiality, or we might call it an event, an event of becoming. And so why Freud and then why postcolonial theory for this uh, project of thinking? That also goes back to your first question, which has to do with um, something of my personal story. Um, I went to graduate school to study one thing, and then I ended up in courses um, focusing on on trauma studies and on post-colonial studies. And I found myself engaged with a certain set of uh, questions that troubled me deeply. And one of them with regard to psychoanalysis, um, I I was deeply troubled by the ways in which the Freudian thought was being articulated in academic discourse. I thought that there was something being missed in terms of what Freud was saying with regard to trauma. 
because the tendency is to say that trauma is something like a transcendental structure, or another way of putting it is, is like a structure that is outside of us, but is nonetheless, again, as I said before, experienced and felt. And this is something that is shared in philosophy, um, this idea of something being at once outside and inside us. I think that I was resistant to the ways in which there was a tendency, as I said, in academia to talk about Freud. And at the same time, I was noticing that in at the time in post-colonial studies, when I started my graduate work um, about 20 years ago now, I was, I was noticing that there was a tendency to speak about um, the historiography of various events like the 1947 partition of British India and less about um, what we might call the psychological dimensions, although it was starting at the time, but it was not very prevalent at the time. And so I, I wanted to, to see what would happen when these two discourses came together. It's interesting you mentioned 1947. And, uh, and I'm keen, uh, actually, to, to talk quite a bit about that because it's it's what one of the most sort of interesting um, points of the book in, in the third chapter. But before that, we should probably spend a little bit of time talking about Freud. And it, it's always, I think, a bit difficult to, to discuss Freud because, you know, his work figures so, you know, kind of um, generally across so many, many disciplines. And, and one thing I might pick up on that I got from the second chapter of the book returns us to uh, your comments about thinking about you know the past and, and living in the present and then onto the future in in Rwanda which is this understanding of time and temporality so you know you talk about events anticipation moments situations periods in, in Freud and I guess that might be you know kind of a, an interesting bridge to thinking about the um, experiences and, and understandings of 1947 so so could you say a bit about i guess kind of you know freud and, and time which seems to be a kind of crucial um part of the second chapter of the book yeah i mean i will i will i would first of all like to say that in in no way shape or form do i have or can claim to have any kind of mastery over what freud says i think part of the the important thing to do is to always read freud so what I will say now is something different than what is in the book, um, because I've, I've changed uh, a lot in my own thinking about these, these topics. Freud, with regard to temporality and, and trauma, this is, this is a difficult topic in Freud, and it's the question of time in Freud's work is constantly ruminated upon but never resolved firmly. And many people have tried to resolve it once and for all. And one of the things that's that's quite clear, in fact, Freud is not interested in resolving time, and he's not interested necessarily in resolving the problem of trauma. But what does happen is that temporality becomes a form of spatiality for him. And this is something that is clear in his thinking of trauma, it becomes especially, especially clear, I think, and the um, the seminal text that many many people call upon, myself included, beyond the pleasure principle from 1920, and I especially later in his work and a, a lot in his um, Wednesday evening soirees where he would speak to his fellow analysts. Um, there's there is a thinking of time not so much as in the philosophical sense or even in the Kantian sense, which is a form of intuition, but more along the lines, in fact, approaching something very close to Einstein. In a strange way, he kind of anticipates, I think, Einstein, which is that it has to do with 
um, a dynamic of space, a dynamic of spatiality. And this is what trauma is for him. And so we see in a certain way that what he calls the, the death drive that this is becomes a purely descriptive term, that it is it does not have the status of being like an ontological entity or let us say something that has the status of being the absolute law for the ways in which we govern and experience our sets of experiences and process them. And time has to do with the ways in which we are constantly in a discourse talking about um, our experiences and talking about, um, without necessarily knowing it, our deeper unconscious conflicts. And that's, that is closer to the relationship, for me at least, between what, um, what you're calling temporality and trauma, which is really much more now about, for me, a dynamic of spatiality, a dynamic of spaces. That's really, that's really, really fascinating. The, I'm sort of tempted to, um, without playing down the fact that people should obviously buy the book and read it um, to, to ask you actually a bit more about, you know, the, the kind of experience of, of your thought sort of changing. I mean, do, does Freud still figure in the work that you're doing now or, you know, is that kind of more spatial understanding something that you've, you know, kind of settled with and, and kind of moved on from? Oh, for sure. Freud is absolutely an important, um, uh, I was about to say figure. Um, I don't mean it in terms of him being, let us say, the absolute father figure. Um, but yeah, he, yeah. he is for sure still still in my work. My work now is is turning, I would say, much more strongly towards psychoanalysis and not towards what is called psychoanalytic theory. So I am I'm always engaging with Freud. I'm always going back and rereading and reading again and again his works and something new is always emerging from this. And I think that it is important always to, to read Freud and more importantly, to listen to what he is saying and to renew and transform a lot of the Freudian concepts. Because I think, in fact, um, it's like anything, the knowledge of what Freud invents is not finished once and for all. And this is also true for Lacan, for Jacques Lacan, who was um, after Freud in, in, in the psychoanalytic tradition. So for sure, you know I'm still walking with Freud. That's really interesting. The uh, I mean, this is a very crude segue now, but obviously, you know, the spatial gives us a kind of a, a gesture towards things like the geographic, and you know, the really kind of big um, spatial and, and, and geographic um, questions come up in the second half of the book, which you think through uh, post-colonial writings on the partition of, of India and Pakistan, and then move into uh, Rwanda and uh, memorialization. And I wonder if we could take them in, in turn. First, uh, I guess, um, the influence of post-colonial uh, thought on partition, what role did that play in, in your kind of work around um understanding trauma uh, before we, we move to think about memorialization in Rwanda? First of all, I'll say that one thing that has always um, struck me about post-colonial studies and post-colonial theory is that there is a strong resistance to wanting to, um, I'm, I'm a little bit, how, how best to phrase it, there's a strong root to the philosophical tradition and what is called post-colonial studies and post-colonial theory 
And at the same time, this field of knowledge wants to make itself distinct, which is great. And it makes sense, of course, because every field of knowledge wants to identify itself as singular and particular. And so this has produced um, very, very rich concepts, one of which is I talk about in the third chapter, if I remember correctly, this is Homi Baba's concept of hybridity and mimicry, um, if my memory of my own book serves well. And Yep, that's that's correct. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so I think that you know it's interesting because a lot of the um, scholars of postcolonial theory, those who have shaped this field of knowledge um, in in the academy, have been very very um, strong in trying to separate postcolonial theory and postcolonial thought from the philosophical tradition on the basis of, of ideas that the philosophical tradition is wrapped up in this kind of Western discourse that is always in its own way perpetuating the kinds of violences it wants to move away from. So on the one hand, the book is, is an attempt to show that, in fact, they don't move away as much as they would like to, that these two fields, the philosophical tradition, what might be called the Western philosophical tradition, and post-colonial studies are really, in a certain way, two faces of the same coin. And so what does that mean? That means that they are trying to think through constituting events, which is to say the ways in which difference is produced, actually, I think, in the same sort of way, which is there's always something outside of us and there's always something inside of us, and we have to figure out these mechanisms by which we integrate difficult um, experiences. And this is actually something that goes back to Heidegger, for example, when he talks about um, the concept of the appropriating event, that we are always appropriating things into um, a horizon of meaning. We are always wanting to make sense of things. It's a very basic, I think, and simple thing that defines what we call human life and living. On the other, So this was one component. On the other hand, the the turn towards the partition, it's a very, very interesting uh, historical event. I don't think at all it's been exhausted, even though a tremendous amount of scholarship and various um, disciplines has been produced about it. But I do think that there is still something to be said about what it is to draw a line in all different senses of the word, geographic, um, psychological, metaphysical, uh, theoretical, empirical, and so forth, and out of that to create two new independent nations, both of which share, um, like two siblings, a set of parents. And I think that this process, which is a deeply political process, obviously, is, is calling upon us to do something different with regard to how we think of spatialities and bodies. And I think it urges us to rethink the ways in which what we call our body, not just in the physical sense or the biological sense or the geographic sense or the political sense and so forth, is always having to do with a certain lack of understanding, a gap, an aporia, however one may phrase it, but something that is never actually able to be filled. So what does it mean then to accept the lack in things. And in a certain way, the third and fourth chapters were an attempt to, to think through that in terms of these real, what some might call these real contexts. Yeah. Cause I mean, th- this leads us quite directly into things that are, um, 
material in in a different sense. The uh, two forms of memorialization um, around the Rwandan genocide, uh, one in, in Kigali um, and the other in, I think I'm pronouncing this uh, correctly, uh, Becero. Um, or, yeah, thank you. My, my pronunciation is terrible, sorry. Um, and it'd be really interesting because we've gone, I guess, through both Freudian and, and post-colonial theory into a really um, practical uh, set of examples. It'd be really interesting to hear your analysis of, of those two um, memorials and the act of memorialization. The, you know, memorialization in Rwanda, and this is, I wouldn't say that Rwanda is the paradigmatic example of this because every culture and nation has a very specific and singular way that um, um, integrates the practice of commemorating difficult events um, in, in terms of the development of a national consciousness, the development of a national identity. So in a certain way, Rwanda shares with many, many other nations, the, the need to make a memory as the way of making history. With regard to Rwanda, what's very interesting, I think, and what is unique is that on the one hand, um, this is tied to Rwanda's economic development, and this is not often talked about. So because it was deemed the preventable genocide, and it was deemed this by a United Nations report, Rwanda actually received, if I um, remember correctly, the most or one of the highest levels of foreign investments than any other country in Africa as a result of this event. So there was this insurgence of, of foreign money coming into Rwanda after the genocide. And the, the need to memorialize Rwanda was linked to um, the making of the reason to invest in Rwanda's development, economic, social, and cultural development. So there's a very specific plan. I don't talk about this at all, although I should have. There's a very specific economic reason for Rwanda's um, memorialization on the level of the national government. There's also the other elements that I do speak about, which is that the government was has made an attempt to create this kind of notion of a Rwandan identity that is not marked by the divisions that gave rise to this um, to this genocide that has produced a lot of difficult problems among Rwandans. So what do we see is that in the Kigali um, Museum, you have this is kind of like the main museum. There are, if I remember correctly, seven nationally sponsored memorializations. The Kigali Museum is more like a formal museum. Uh, one can walk in. There is it's it's organized chronologically. There are a lot of artifacts from the genocide, and it's meant to be instructive. So there are a lot of placards that tell the visitor what happened. It gives a brief history of colonization in Rwanda. It gives a history of the outbreak of genocide, of um, the lack of response by the UN, and then of subsequent responses to, to the genocide after it finished. And then the museum also talks about the refu refugee crisis. So it gives this kind of trajectory of the of the genocide as shaping um, the emergence of a of what might be called a new new Rwanda out of colonization through the event of genocide and its reinvention. So it has this kind of manufactured sense. I mean you really as the visitor the way you go through the museum is also very distinct. So you are traveling through the museum alongside the chronology. 
Bisacero is is actually a very difficult um, memorial to get to. It's at the border with Congo. It's on top of a giant, um, very, very beautiful hill. Rwanda is known as the land of a thousand hills. And it's a journey to get there. It's The roads are not easy. It takes a long time. It is not particularly easy to find. Um, and when I was there, it was for the most part closed. But it is a series of bunkers that house the the bones of victims of the genocide. All of these bones are... When I was there, they were organized um, by types of bones, and they had been meticulously cleaned, um, which is actually a practice that is sponsored by the government. Um, Each of the memorial sites where they have bones for visitors to see hires what is called the bone cleaner, and the bone cleaner's job is to literally scrub the bones and maintain, interestingly enough, their their calcification of the whiteness. And Bisacero when I went was a series of bunkers that housed thousands upon thousands of bones. So one room was skulls, one room was filled with femurs and so forth. And in a certain way, this, this memorial was not in any way, shape or form trying to give a narrative in the literal sense, but was trying to invoke a certain experience, at least from my interpretation. I think everyone would have a different interpretation, but my interpretation, my experience of the memorial was that it was very much an encounter with what the experience of that genocide was like in that particular region of having to flee for one's life, of not knowing what was going to happen, except that there was an imminent um, death and dying to, to confront. And so that is forced in a certain way upon the visitor, just in the sheer numbers of the bones and how they're stacked haphazardly yet strangely cleaned at the same time. And so this is also a nationally sponsored memorial. And this is also important as a contrast to the Kigali Memorial Center. Um, but at the same time, it's not for nothing that it's exceptionally difficult for the average traveler or tourist to go see. So one really has to make an effort in a lot of different sense of, uh, senses of the word, to access that experience. I don't know if that answers your question, but perhaps it's it's something of an answer. It, it actually prompts um, a further question, um, which is kind of useful, um, which is you, you've spoken very movingly about, I guess, the kind of material reality of these two memorials, you know, both intertwined with the building of a, of a new state, but memorializing the conflict very, very differently. Where does psychoanalysis figure in all of this? And, and, and how do you sort of bring in uh, that concern with Freud in, into understanding these uh, two memorials and, and the genocide itself? I, how to, I'm thinking now how to reply to this, to this question. I, I cannot give a complete answer to this question. I, I don't think that I can even begin to skim the surface of it. But what I can say is that what psychoanalysis brings, which no other discourse brings, and by psychoanalysis, I mean I don't mean psychoanalytic theory. I mean psychoanalysis as an intrication between what we call the clinic practice and theory. And this is something that is very important in Freud, which is that it's it's always psychoanalysis is itself a spatiality of these three things moving together at the same time and always changing the ways in which these three things are are developing and formulating themselves. So what does psychoanalysis bring to this question of memorialization? 
and I would maybe say, I would add to that, to the question of the ways in which we um, incorporate events that deeply and profoundly change us, deeply and profoundly shatter everything that we knew to be our senses of ourselves, our identities, what we call our worlds, our realities, and in part, a lifetime for many, a lifetime of suffering. I used to think that a lot of psychoanalytic theory and the ways in which um, university discourse was talking about trauma was we have to work through trauma. We overcome it. I think this is something common. People find this in conversations focusing on psychology as well. I don't, I don't share this thought anymore. What psychoanalysis brings, and it is, has to do with only the singular subject is that it brings with it a way of accepting the lack and also in accepting the lack, giving support to the trauma. And I don't, I don't share anymore the aim of working through trauma. I think practices of memorialization are ways of supporting the trauma. So I'm no longer of the, of the knowledge that psychoanalytic theory gives us a way of mourning trauma, but rather, or remaining melancholic to a trauma, but rather how the body supports trauma, which has to do with the presence of what we might call the absence, which is something singular to each subject. There's no generalized term for what we call the absence. It's just something that each subject in his or her own way, whether as an individual or a group, formulates. And psychoanalysis helps us support that and reduce reduce its effects. And I think memorialization can have this capacity in some ways, not totally, but in some ways. Lots and lots more things in the book. We, we could talk about the kind of uh, political questions around um, psychoanalysis. I mean, we, you know, you mentioned Lacan, Heidegger, this, you know, the, the book is really rich. There's a lot going on in there. But I think to conclude, I'm quite interested in, in, in where you go next. And you've gestured uh, towards this a couple of times, talking about an engagement with psychoanalysis, about, uh, you know, your sort of uh, position on maybe the purpose and value of, of psychoanalysis. Is, is this the next the next project for you? Or what, what sort of uh, direction are you going in? Will you be returning to postcolonial theory, or is is that something that, broadly speaking, you've you know you've kind of written on and, and now are moving away from? I would definitely. It, it yes. I mean, I'm I'm in the process of moving away from it, but I you know like a lot of things in life, they certain things stay with you. But uh, my my current project uh, is very much invested in in the relationship between psychoanalysis and what we call body, and it's it is on the one hand, an attempt to, to generate a new concept of the body, which becomes a way of formulating and developing a new theory of the political. So I am also still in this book pretty strongly rooted in the philosophical tradition. I, I seem to have um, a strong love of philosophy and a strong love of psychoanalysis. So in a certain way, the new project is an attempt to put together these two spaces and see what happens with regard to the question of the political and how we might move away from a concept of the body as always linked to organism. And I think that also, I, I might add that there's a tendency in philosophy to, 
to rely on the concept of the biological body as the greatest resource for thinking the political. And and by greatest resource, I don't necessarily mean as um, the most positive resource. It can also be the most negative and destructive resource. Uh, so the new the new book is an attempt to to put these two spaces of bodies together and and to see what happens. And next year, the year after, or a much longer term project? Oh no, I I'm no, it should be done uh, this year. Oh, fantastic! I, I <laughs> that remains to be seen, you know, but. Uh, and it, you know, it's it's like a lot of things. It's an ongoing project, but sooner or later, I will I will know when to to say enough is enough and and close the process and send it off for publication. 